0: What's up, folks? Friday means new OutKick the Culture episode right here for you. Glad to have you with us again this week. I'm Jason Martin, your host on Twitter at jmart Outkick. You can reach me via email if you'd like to do it that way. jmartclone, that's C-L-O-N-E, at gmail.com. So, we got the Deuce premiere out there. Uh, The first episode, which is not going to air on on HBO until September the 10th, is actually already there for consumption via streaming HBO Go, HBO Now, HBO On Demand. I'm going to talk about that. I've got uh, some other episodes that I've seen, but I'm not going to talk about those yet because you actually have a chance to watch one. There's no reason really for me to go into too much detail about the ones you can't see yet, so we'll talk about that. Also, Game of Thrones comes to a close, season seven at least does. Ice Dragons are out there. The Wall is gone. Cersei is still Cersei. No Mountain versus Hound fight. So we'll discuss that a little bit. Also today at Outkick.com, you will read, or hopefully you will read, an article from me comparing the Game of Thrones penultimate season to other penultimate seasons of great television shows of the recent past. I picked five shows. And I want you to go there I want you to check it out and see what you think about it and compare and contrast. I also mentioned this year's entry, The Americans, because The Americans and Game of Thrones both knew this year was their penultimate season, even though really Game of Thrones is almost like a split season in terms of the amount of episodes that are there. But there were drastically different tactics taken between those two shows. And I think that they resulted in different levels of success. So I mentioned the Americans, then I mentioned some historically important shows, at least to this audience, to people that are just sort of new and are watching peak TV now. Mad Men, Breaking Bad, uh, The Wire, Friday Night Lights, some of those kinds of shows are there. So hopefully you'll check that article out. Next week we'll discuss that in a little bit more detail than we will today. Maybe we'll touch on it just a little bit here in a bit. Also, Narcos Season 3 hit Netflix. I'll tell you what I think of that. I watched a lot of Narcos in the last week and a half. Kind of went back and refreshed a little bit on Season 1 and Season 2. We are post-Pablo, post-Escobar at this point in Narcos. We're also post-Steve Murphy as Javier Pena takes center stage as the lead and kind of the key of the entire story as he goes after the Cali cartel along with the merry band of both locals in Colombia as well as the American government. So we'll discuss that in detail as well. But let's go ahead and start with The Deuce. The Deuce is David Simon and George Pelicanos, who you know from The Wire. They created The Wire together. They worked on The Wire. Of course, David Simon, Treme, Homicide Life on the Street, The Corner, um, Show Me a Hero. There's a whole lot out there to tell you what this guy is capable of as a showrunner and somebody with a vision for unique, original, and gritty storytelling on television, The Deuce is something completely different. Not different in terms of it not being gritty, but just, we have not seen a show about the pleasure industry. Now, a lot of this is going to lead to the rise of the pornography industry, but at this early stage, we're seeing a lot of prostitution and things of that sort in 1971 in Times Square. So everything is playing out as you would expect it to at the beginning. You can't get to porn before you tell the infancy of what's happening before that. I know, it's called the world's oldest profession. Well, thank God we didn't start in the 1500s or Caligula's time or whatever. We started in 1971 in New York City. And we started, unlike, all right, look, The Wire is the most criminally underrated show in the history of television when it comes to the awards that it took home, particularly Emmys. Emmys is still what people say, oh, well, that guy won an Emmy. Emmy, as you know if you listen to the third episode of this podcast, it's not something I give too much of a damn about because they pick nonsense, and they pick things, and once they start picking you, they'll continue to pick you. Not necessarily to win, but to nominate. Is Modern Family something that should be nominated for Best Comedy anymore? No, it probably shouldn't have been three years ago either, but it has been year after year after year after year after year. Downton Abbey was good for like two or three years. It was still getting Best Drama nominations almost all the way through its run. Stuff that people don't even watch. Even I, stuff I didn't even get to watch, will make it because it has the right star on it or it has the right particular theme at that time or whatever. So shows like The Wire, shows like The Leftovers, shows like The Americans sometimes can't find a way to crack into that mold. David Simons, The Wire, as well as his Treme, both were largely ignored by the Emmy voters. When was that going to change? I would suggest to you it changes now. At the end of my review, which you can still find at outkick.com right now, where I talked about the Deuce in 2,300 words, I predicted that in the first season alone, there will be multiple nominations for the Deuce for Emmy Awards. And I truly believe that's true. And it's not really a bad thing to say it's because of this, but it does sort of indicate the problems of the Emmy Voting Committee. Two stars leading the deuce. Both of them associated behind the scenes as well. James Franco, who plays two roles, plays twin brothers, and Maggie Gyllenhaal. Two talented people, two decorated people, two A-list people. Obviously, Franco and 128 Hours and Maggie Gyllenhaal and what she's done in the past as secretary and things of that nature. These are two stars that Emmy and television want to latch on to. Maggie Gyllenhaal has already done great work on television a few years ago on Sundance as The Honorable Woman, which is a miniseries available. You can find it on Netflix. I urge you to do so. I think you would really enjoy it. Very different kind of show, but you'll like it. James Franco, well, you know, he did Freaks and Geeks. He's been more of certainly a big screen kind of actor. But the thing about both of them is they're incredibly talented. So that's important. But the fact that they have names is what's going to make Emmy take note. And luckily, it's also probably going to filter down to some of the other people on the show that you don't know quite as well. And I think that could even be attributed to something like the Fargo effect, where, look, you do know who Gene Smart is, and you do know who Martin Freeman is, and you do know who Billy Bob Thornton is, and you know who Oliver Platt is, and you know who Ewan McGregor is. And you know who Mary Elizabeth Winstead is, just as an example. And it begins to filter down because voters are actually watching the show because of the star power on it. Now, nobody's a bigger star fucker than the Golden Globes. Golden Globes is going to love the deuce. Believe me on that. But luckily for us, in this case, it's to our benefit because the deuce is excellent. It's dark. It does not portray these industries in a positive light. This is by no means a glorification, which is a tribute and a compliment to Simon and Pelicanos and everybody else that's associated with the Deuce. It's not an easy watch. You remember me discussing my philosophy and my theory of the red versus the blue show. This is definitely a red show. If you didn't know that, by the time you get to the end of the premiere, when you see a woman having her armpit sliced with a Knife, basically, because she dared to say she didn't want to work as a prostitute in a downpour. That's all you needed to know. But The Wire was an ultimate red show. Treme, a large part of Tremay, was a red show. David Simon depicts what he believes to be corrupt, what he believes to be failing institutions, what he believes to be degradation of society. And he does so exquisitely. And that's what you get in The Deuce. And HBO made a really interesting decision with The Deuce, which is to put it out now. I can talk about it in detail and go into the show because they've already placed it in our hands via the streaming service, even though the premiere doesn't air until September the 10th. This is a intriguing move. I talked about it a little bit last week. But Halt and Catch Fire, a few weeks before it came on, the actual pilot episode three years ago, They put their first episode on YouTube, as well as on AMC.com, or AMCTV.com, rather. So you could go there, and you could sample it out. The problem for Halt and Catch Fire is that Pilot wasn't very good, and I think it turned people off. And then it did harm the ratings, because if you like something, you're probably still going to go back and watch it that night. That's the argument against... Or it's the argument for watching the Game of Thrones leaks when they came out is, look, I love the show, I'm going to watch it both times, but I'm so invested in it and so obsessed with it that I have to see the next part of the story as soon as I know it's out there. I don't want it spoiled for me, and I just can't wait any longer. Everybody's got money burning a hole in their pocket. That's one of my favorite analogies to use. Nobody can wait. I did, but almost nobody else did, or a large quantity of people watched that stream of episode six. You know, four days before it aired and watch the leaked episode four days before it aired is the same way. Even if it wasn't in great quality, they just had to see it. But if you're and Catch Fire, you put it on and maybe you believed at the time that your product was good. It really had not aged yet. It was a green banana, there was no yellow yet. But somebody still decided they wanted to put it into a salad and now you've got an unripened fruit salad that's not exactly what you want. So people deserted Halt and Catch Fire as a result. Five episodes later, Halt and Catch Fire caught fire, went in fuego, and a lot of the audience was already gone and never came back and missed, and I've you know tried to make this point last week. Uh, season 2 and Season 3 and Season 4, which is airing now, the final year, have been some of the most underrated and best pieces of drama anywhere on television. So, it's a risk to put your show on early because you are giving the public a chance to sample it and making a judgment on it before that first episode. Now, if you watched the first episode when it would have aired and did not watch it ahead of time, you know, it would have still been the same result in your own head. But the difference is why you put this out early is to generate buzz and to generate people talking to each other about these shows and saying, hey, you got to check this out. And man, I'm adding this to my DVR long ahead of schedule. And in this case, for the Deuce, the Deuce is jumping the NFL. NFL is coming back in a couple of weeks. The Deuce is a Sunday night drama for HBO. I mean, It's going to be going directly up against NBC Sunday Night Football, which is one of the single most lucrative time slots anywhere in the history of television at this point. You don't want to go directly against that blind. So you put this thing out now, before the NFL games matter, and before almost any of them even being played on a Sunday night, and you say, watch this show. Make this appointment viewing. You're going to want to add this to your DVR, but you're also going to go to the office, and you're going to talk to the know-it-all chick in the cubicle next to you or your boss across the way at lunch or at the water cooler or while you're making copies or whatever it is, and you're going to say, have you seen the deuce? You can actually watch the premiere right now, but I'm telling you, this show is awesome. We need to, you know, we're going to be talking about this and blah, 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 blah. And then the hype machine starts. And by the time September 10th comes, everybody already knows what the deuce is. If they watched it, maybe they watch it again. If they haven't, oh, you know what? I heard like six people at work talking about the deuce. I'm going to tune in tonight. Then the only question becomes, is this show worth a damn? Because in the case of Halt and Catch Fire, it backfired. In the case of, and it's this is that's not the only example, but that's just one recent one. But the Deuce being out there in advance is great because the show's great. The Deuce is excellent. The Wire premiere was not a show or not a an episode I was particularly fond of. It did not hook me immediately. The Deuce did. The Deuce is really, really good. It lays out well. The scenery and setting of 1971, the way in which these characters behave and react seems very appropriate to the time. There's a variance in what you're seeing and who you're seeing. There are actually some people outside of the industry. I don't know exactly why we're seeing them yet. I assume it's because they're going to get sucked into virtuous industries or non-virtuous industries. It's got everything got sex that, if you read Uprocks.com, they did a piece late last week or early this week about how Simon and Pelicanus want to make sure that the sex that's depicted in this show is not arousing to the viewer. They don't want you to like the sex that you're seeing. And I think that's important, too, because if you watch Maggie Gyllenhaal's character Candy as she operates, as she says, nobody makes money off my pussy but me, as she talks about how... She's just another businesswoman when she's talking to that poor kid that exploded during the condom situation before there was ever any sex, but still paid $40 for the right to end his session in about seven seconds. You see what this is and what it's not. Sex is not love unless the love exists ahead of time. The problem with going to the strip club is you're really just looking at objects, You're not getting emotion. If you feel like you're getting emotion, it's because she's really, really good at her job. Strip clubs, pornography, all of that, these are not people in your life. These are people that are doing something they're getting paid to do, or in some cases, unfortunately, being forced to do. They're generally not happy. Some of them are. And virtually none of them are doing any of this for pleasure. Now, there are escorts out there that really love sex. But in general, they're trying to cash a paycheck. In the case of Candy, she's got a son who lives with her mother. We see that after we see Candy say some pretty reprehensible stuff and how she acts on the street and how she acted with Stuart, the kid. But then we see her go and take her birthday gift to her son. And we see her go into her room and sit down on her childhood bed and stare at the wall. And on the wall are pinups of... Marilyn Monroe, and Elvis Presley, and the pop stars of the day, which you would have seen on the Tiger Beats of 1960. And then in that moment, you're reminded that Candy was once a child, that she was once Stewart's age, that she was once her son's age, that she was once an innocent party, just like everybody else. And even then, even in the Candy that we find, the Candy that we meet on the streets talking about her vagina she has more than one side. We see what we see on the street and then she goes home to her real life. There's always the joke that the stripper is just trying to pay her way through medical school or trying to pay her way through law school. A lot of times it's actually true. She's just hot and she knows she can make money. And in a lot of cases, she can make a ton of money off of drunk, lonely guys. So there's already multiple sides to a key character. Franco playing two different roles, we see two different characters. We see two different brothers, one that's in trouble that's a complete gambling degenerate and another one that's caught holding the bag that might be a little bit racist but talks like a lot of 1971 bartenders would in New York City, you would imagine. Vincent Martino, who befriends Abby in the bar, and of course Frankie Martino that's basically just a criminal. But we know how this is going to end. Both of them are going to end up in the mob or working for the mob. They're already basically tied to the mob, and we see that already. But we also hear about Vincent. When we hear Vincent and Abby talking, they also talk about things that are of the world but also above the world. Abby's a student. She's a student that got arrested in Hell's Kitchen for trying to buy speeds so that her friends could stay awake for an exam. But she is somebody talking about the objectification of women. And understanding things like syllogisms, and actually mentioning that to the professor that she's then writing in the next scene. There's just there's a lot happening in this show, but there's a duplicitous nature where there are two conflicting things: one that you see and one that you don't see. And I think that's what makes the do special off the jump. Cece is a very very important character. To the early stages of this show. And as soon as we saw Gary Carr and how nice he was acting to Lori when she got off that bus in Minnesota and he took her to breakfast and tried to wine her and make him, you know, her newest or his newest woman, CeCe is smiling and joking. And we're hearing about how Larry Brown is just a a serious pimp that might beat you up and all this. And Darlene, we see Darlene ask Lewis. The old man that had her watching A Tale of Two Cities with him, we see her ask him for money. Extra money, because she had spent extra time with him, and Larry would probably be upset with her. But then when she hands the money to Larry, Larry opens the door and puts her in the car. It's not that Larry's a good guy, but Larry's been presented as a villain, while we've watched CeCe this entire time be kind of this jovial, joking, almost Silky Johnson, Dave Chappelle-looking guy in 1971 the real amalgam of what you would expect a player hating pimp to look like. And then we get to the moment where Ashley is in an absolute downpour and there's nobody out there on the roads. And she goes across, runs across to where CeCe is eating a meal or having a drink, and she basically says, I don't want to work tonight, baby. Let's just go somewhere, you and I. And she likes CeCe. And CeCe says, okay, baby, I understand. Let's go. Soon as soon as I heard that, I knew it was coming. But I knew it was coming from the minute we started seeing CeCe and how nice he was. The Deuce is not going to portray pimps as positive forces. So when we see see when we see CeCe, that is much more difficult than I expected it to be. When we see this guy treating these women well, and we hear about how the other pimps might not be treating them as well. This is David Simon. This is George Pelicanos. We... All should have, and I did, and I imagine a lot of you who've seen it already did as well, knew where this was going. James Franco, Vinny, with a woman in his apartment, hears some screaming down the hall. He Walks down the hall, looks in the bathroom, and he sees Ashley crying up against the wall. Her hands above her head pushed one of CeCe's hands against them to hold them against the tile. And she's bleeding, and he's got a knife, and he's cut under her armpit. And he's screaming and talking about, I don't care if you're wet, you're muddy, you're hungry, you get my fucking money. Next time I'll cut your face and you won't make another penny. Pure evil. And if at any point the deuce had you, it was this point. And this was the end of the episode. A very powerful way to end the episode. A reminder that things are not going to be what they seem on the deuce. Because things in the sex industry, the industry of sex are never what they seem. When Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera or whoever it might be, Ariana Grande, Selena Gomez, and then the guys as well, if you're a woman listening to this show, are gyrating at you and talking about how they want to be a slave for you in their music videos, just remember that's not actually true. When you're at the strip club and the dancer, the private dancer, while you're in the champagne room is doing all kinds of fun stuff to you and then she starts asking you about you and you guys seem to have a lot in common and she is so into you like in a way that you just you know girls just aren't into you that way remember she's just trying to get to your wallet when you're watching pornography remember that a lot of those girls are in absolute pain and misery And we've seen stories of of male porn stars that take advantage of the females on screen to where you can't see where one of their hands is. And that's because it's actually pulling the hair off the side of this poor, you know, the, the poor other woman, just pulling it away from her body so that she begins to cry or scream louder for the scene. Guys that take advantage of girls on set, things of that nature. We've seen those stories in the news. We've even seen, you know, Netflix documentaries about it. We've seen pornography addiction and the trappings of of all of that. This entire industry is built around a lie that fantasy can become reality. And that's just not the case. It's just an act. If you're paying for sex, it's just an act. She's going to leave. Or if you're a woman, he's going to leave. You're going to go back to the same life that you had an hour before. And you might need an HIV test for it. The deuce is the HIV test, and it's the sex with the escort that shows up that looks nothing like her profile photo, if you picked her up online. The one that looks so in shape, and then she shows up, and she's 100 pounds heavier. She's got tattoos, smells like an ashtray, and is terrible at her job. And I'm constantly, I've I've read this, apparently there are some that just stare at clocks look at their watches repeatedly because once the time's up, they'll just leave. And so they just try to get through the time. The Deuce gives you all of this, but in no form during the entire almost 90 minutes of this premiere was I, not only was I not aroused, I didn't want any part of this world except that I really want to see this world. I really want to see where David Simon and George Pelicanos are going to take us. And when you put James Franco and Maggie Gyllenhaal front and center, and then you put some really, really talented other people around, Margarita Levieva, I thought was a real standout as Abby Parker. Emily Mead doing a good job as Lori. Jamie Newman, who we saw as Ashley. Benga Akinagwe, Larry Brown. I mean, there, there are a lot of people that you will see that you may not even recognize the names, but when you see them, you'll know. Thought Dominique Fishback as Darlene was ex- just exceptional during this premiere. And the one other, you know, there was the Stewart deal that I told you about. There's one other part of this episode that I want to talk about. Darlene spends time with an elderly John named Louis, who I mentioned earlier. And we see her on the bed crying, watching the tail end of A Tale of Two Cities, 1935 film that was adopted from the Dickens classic. She's got tears in her eyes talking about the idea that nobody loved this man until the end. I don't think she'd ever watched A Tale of Two Cities before. She's so into it. And we see Lewis, and he's in his own chair, and he's in a sleeveless undershirt, and he's got slacks on. And he's a John, and she's a woman of the night, so you assume that you knew what happened. Again, things not as they seem. And this time, it's for a different result. How do you define pleasure? Is it carnal? Is it sexual? Is it connection? What is it? For Lewis, when Darlene, after the fact, asks if he wants a hand job or if there's anything else that he wants, he says, "No, I just wanted to watch a movie with you. I want to watch a movie. I like watching movies with you." And then she asks for an upfront on the next week so that her pimp won't be upset with her for spending, you know, how long it takes to watch a movie, and then coming back with meager earnings. But Lewis turns her down when she offers him other services. Because that's not what he wanted. For this lonely elderly man, he just wanted... Maybe he wanted a vibrant, smiling female to watch a movie with him. But they're not even sitting within five feet of one another. He just wanted companionship. He just wanted somebody to watch this film with. Somebody to experienced this part of his life with and he ordered pizza for him He even offers her all the leftover pizza before she leaves and she takes off i thought this was a really important scene a really powerful scene just to remind us that not everybody is a scumbag some people are really lonely and some people are really struggling and people want different things just like different strokes for different strokes in life it's true in the bedroom but it's also true just in your own brain as to what you need maybe Lewis was too old and just didn't care about sex anymore or maybe there was more to it and Darlene expected one thing didn't get it and we saw that same Darlene earlier get nearly beaten by a guy and that turned out to be actually part of the game where he got a little bit rougher with her than usual and he was apologizing to her and and all of that but it was actually part of the game when when you first see it, it looks like she's being raped again Nothing on the Deuce is as it seems. The Deuce as a name is very interesting to me because it connotes two, and I think there are two sides to just about every character that we're going to meet on this show. I gave the pilot an A minus. It's about 90 minutes. That's a pretty solid review. It was better than the Wire pilot to me. Just there was more in there was more there that I was interested in seeing more of. Many characters that I'm already interested in, that I'm already compelled by and of whom I can't wait to see more. The Deuce absolutely should be on your DVR schedule. Just go ahead and set it. If you're going to be watching football on Sunday night, that's fine. But you're going to want to watch The Deuce. Of course, if you have HBO, you can watch it on demand anytime you want. But this show is going to get multiple nominations. probably wins. This has a very... There's pieces of it that remind me of The Wire. There are pieces of it that remind me of Treme. And there are pieces that feel like you're watching a high-budget Martin Scorsese film. So you kind of get this good mix between the two. But what's important here is there's depth, there's nuance, and there is a complete absence of any glorification of this world. This is a hellscape. But it is a really, really well-done television show. And I'm here to tell you, believe the hype on this one. When you were watching those trailers during Game of Thrones over the last two months... And you said, man, I wonder if that's going to be any good. Yeah, wonder wonder no longer. It's going to be damn good. The Deuce might be the best show we have left coming out this, this fall. Definitely a worthy entry for HBO. And I think it's one that's going to have legs. And the star power doesn't hurt. Same way Boardwalk Empire was buttressed by having Steve Buscemi in the Nucky Thompson role, which then trickled down to other characters. I think we're going to see the same thing from The Deuce, and that's to all of our benefit more than it is theirs, because when you start to see some of these smaller roles and some of these characters that I think are going to become really big, these are talented folks. and They're going to get more jobs, and their names are going to get out there more, because they are close by to some A-list celebrities who realize that this was a project worth jumping on. So The Deuce is an absolute knockout as far as I'm concerned. You know, I was wrong on vinyl. I thought the pilot of vinyl was really good, and then the show basically fell apart after that. I'm not wrong on The Deuce. The Deuce is excellent television. It's tough television to watch, but it's excellent TV. I think I've said that about six times, so I guess that means we'll move on. We will, by the way, I will be writing on The Deuce weekly at Outkick.com. That will be one of the shows I'm covering this fall, and we will be talking about it here on this show quite a bit as well. Now let's talk about another red show for sure. Narcos on Netflix. Season 3 hit today. I screened it all week, basically, to get through it. Here's what we know about Narcos Season 3 going in, or what you guys know, as I've already seen it. No Wagner Mora. And that's a big deal because it means no Pablo Escobar and it means no seminal performance that was getting that level of award love. If you've watched Narcos, and I know a lot of you have, Wagner Moura's performance is arguably, I'm trying to think, like, if you look down the line of Netflix shows, what's the best single performance that you've seen from an actor on a Netflix show? You could go to The Crown, certainly, I would say. Some of you would say Spacey or Robin Wright. I can't go there. Um, You know, Uzo Aduba and some of the stuff Taylor Schilling and some of the things you've seen on Orange is the New Black. Mark Marin on glow is certainly on my short list disease without question on Master of none there have been a lot uh you know the, the few there were some strong performances on Ozark as well but if I had to just pick one I might go with Wagner Moore I mean look we know Pablo Escobar we know this story we've known it for many many years because it's been told and retold in documentaries and even uh it's been like the subject of shows like entourage for a season where you didn't really learn anything about it because Vinny Chase was playing the role. But Pablo Escobar is a name that just carries a lot of clout, so we knew a lot about it. That provides sometimes benefits to an actor, and sometimes it provides challenges. Let's look back to the people versus O.J. Simpson on FX last year, and I think it worked in certain cases. Sarah Paulson and Marsha Clark and Sterling K. Jones as Chris Darden and, of course, Courtney B. Vance, as Johnny Cochran, among others. But then in some cases, like for Cuba, it was tough to play OJ because OJ is such a famous personality. The difference here is many of us don't know what Pablo Escobar sounds like. And Narcos didn't necessarily... Mora doesn't necessarily look like the real Pablo Escobar, but he doesn't look far enough off that it's bad. Narcos just kind of went all in with it. And Mora is such a talented performer that it didn't matter. We were watching their version of events, but we totally believed he was Pablo Escobar. Narcos is always really intriguing to me in the way that they would go between the actual historic shots and then their version. When we would see Escobar, like photos of Escobar with his soccer team, for example, or outside of an airplane or you know, speaking to a throng of people, and then it would immediately cut to Wagner. And the look would be so different and so radically changing that sometimes it would actually be a little bit distracting for a couple of seconds. But Mora was such a just amazing actor on that show that the question I had at the end of season two, when I'm sitting there watching him get good finally watching Pablo get gunned down on that rooftop, is can this show exist without him? It certainly can, but maybe the question is, should it exist without him? Should Narcos have been a two-season expose, long-form storytelling of this Pablo Escobar rise and fall and finally the ultimate fall? Because nothing was going to be this salacious or this interesting, we thought, than the Pablo story. And it was very good, but I don't think you could have taken it any further. You could have slowed it down, I guess, but... We didn't need more than two seasons of this Pablo story. So that was really what Narcos had to deal with. That's what Broncado and the other two creators, Carlo Bernard and Doug Miro, had to do with season three is prove that their vision needed more time, that they actually had more than just a Pablo Escobar story to tell. So we bring in the Cali cartel in season two. Of all of them, we saw Pacho Herrera, far more than any, anybody else as he was kind of playing both sides of the fence as he was trying to take down Pablo Escobar on behalf of his own interests. But we saw a little bit of the Cali cartel of those godfathers. But that was about it. So Narco season three, I was really fascinated to see how it was going to play out. You lose Boyd Holbrook, which means you lose Steve Murphy. And while I like Boyd Holbrook's narration, I know a lot of people weren't big fans of this, just like some people don't like it when Frank Underwood talks to the screen, and some people do. I like the narrative in this situation because so much of Narcos is taking place in a strange land for me. There's accents, and there's subtitles, and there's varying stories, and there's people all over the place, and stuff is, awfully, is moving generally fairly quickly. That I like to have somebody slow it down, not dumb it down for me, but crystallize more difficult concepts and history in particular almost like a documentary for a couple of minutes and then we get back to the actual drama I liked it and I like Boyd Holbrook's voice although at times I thought we were listening to a narration about them damn old Duke boys than we were about Pablo Escobar and cocaine and drug traffickers in Colombia but he exits Steve Murphy exits his job ended at the end of the Escobar deal at least as far as this show is concerned which means that Pedro Pascal takes the lead. Javier Pena, who I think was always more dynamic by far than Steve Murphy was even in the first two seasons, and some of the stuff in season two that was most obnoxious about Narcos was the Steve Murphy stuff. He became more and more annoying to me as the show went on. I liked him a lot early. Then he became very cliched, static, and unnecessary to me. Obviously, the show was at its best when we were hanging out with Escobar and and, Lemon and everybody else on that side. But when it got to the DEA, what was actually interesting was Pascal's character. It was Pena. Pena had nuance. Pena was a better actor, quite frankly. Pedro Pascal, better actor, I would say, than Boyd Holbrook as well. And it, there's just something about that character that actually had clout, where the Murphy character just seemed off. I'm going to make a, an interesting thought here. When I think about Narcos, I actually, for some reason, always think of another show. It's not necessarily akin, but it's sort of close in that it was also telling something that also involved history, but this was much more original And the storytelling that took place outside of Vietnam, which was the scene of what turned out to be the last episode of the series, a one-season show for Cinemax, it may have just been the lead or the way in which I think the lead could have been played. But Corey, which by the way made my top 10 last year on Outkick, it's just one season, didn't end up making it. Cinemax made a real mistake, in my opinion, but it turns out to be one of the best one seasons we, we've we had on TV in a long, long time, and it had an ending that you can feel at least comfortable with. But Logan Marshall Green, who played the lead on Quarry, just imagine if instead of Boyd Holbrook, we would have had Logan Marshall Green in the role of Steve Murphy. I think the show's a lot better if you had Logan Marshall Green And Pedro Pascal as opposed to what we got but now we just have Pedro Pascal now Pena is in the driver's seat he's wearing a suit and tie more often than he's wearing a half open button-down shirt he's still betting women attractive women but he's a lot more all business this season in many respects than he has been in the past the good news for you if you're a Narcos fan is Pedro Pascal's great. Pena is better in every way than Steve Murphy, including, by the way, as a narrator, because the narration is still there. There's nowhere near as much of it as there was last season. But Pascal's voice works really effectively. It's authoritative. It gets the point across, and you never lose yourself in it. It never sounds comical. Sometimes Holbrook's stuff sounded almost comical. Like I said, it sounded like the Dukes of Hazzard. Pascal is telling you the story, especially, you'll see this early on, maybe third episode, maybe even the second. He explains money laundering, and he goes through this entire process. It's about three minutes long, and you just heard money laundering explained about a month and a half ago by Jason Bateman on Ozark. Pascal dwarfs Bateman in this situation, and I'm a fan of this narrative structure when it's done at the beginning, especially of episodes. This was not. This was like midway through of narcos season three in one of the episodes it was about 20 minutes into an episode but pascal can pull that off really effectively the pena character is very good and it sort of leads a rebirth for narcos in some way where the show is still the same but not quite we knew when we started watching narcos that the drug war was never going to be won stecker the cia guy that we met last season on the show says in about the third episode of the season when he's actually in the jungle with Pena he says we lost the drug war you were there we both were Narcos isn't necessarily trying to make any kind of a point but we know how it's going to end it's not going to end whenever they stop making the show and the season and the fourth season's already been green lighted so we know we've got at least one more year of it drug war still going on now The players have changed. The locales may have changed. The substances may have changed, at least in some capacity. But generally speaking, yes, that war was lost a long, long time ago. So remember the end of season two. The king is dead. Long live the kings, is what Pena heard from the operations chief when he actually thought he might be going to jail or losing his job or being censured. Cocaine still flowed when Pablo was at his weakest. In fact, more of it flowed. And it flowed from, largely, the Cali Cartel, who is the storytelling mechanism that we get into here in Season 3. And now that I've actually seen all of Season 3, I can tell you not only does it succeed, but it should be something everybody is watching. The Cali Cartel, Gilberto and Miguel Rodriguez, played expertly by Damian Alcazar and Francisco Dennis, Pacho Herrera, who is Alberto Amon, who may be the star of the entire thing outside of Pascal, and Chepe Santa Cruz Londono, Pepe Rapazote, who kind of operates in New York. And these are guys that did things covertly and not overtly. For example, you saw the bodies in the streets as a result of the Medellin cartel and certainly what Escobar did. That's not exactly how the Cali cartel decides to go about it they want to do what they do in secret. They're living in penthouses. They're not trying to become presidents. They want to make money. They want to live the high life. And now they're actually planning their exit strategy, thinking that they've made enough. They're going to get out. They're going to plead to some little little bit of charges and be okay in about six months. So in that six months, the DEA is trying to take them down before they can make some kind of a deal. And at the same time, they are still trying to enrich themselves as much as possible on the way out the door. That's sort of the backdrop of everything that is going on. But one example of covert versus overt is that when the Cali cartel kills people, they wrap them in a strategic and very specialized kind of barbed wire and then toss them into the ocean. And as the body, or not in the ocean, into the river, and as the body expands with all that water, it, the barbed wire cuts them to ribbons and cuts them to pieces, and then the fish just eat them. So they disappear. That's a pretty elaborate thing, and you hear Pascal actually go through the narration to explain that as he does, you know, when he goes when it's time to go through the history lessons. Pacho Herrera, Alberto Amon, like I said, maybe the star of the entire thing. I don't think we realize what a mean streak he had, at least previously, but in season three you do. I mean, this guy's got a serious body count as the hitman that he is. And also, we explore sexuality because he was an openly gay man in this. And we see in the very first episode, him dance with a man in front of a large group of people that look stunned to see it. And it shows basically how tough he is and how open he's willing to be at this stage. And, you know, there are some of his colleagues and some family members that are just sitting there mouth agape and he doesn't really care. And it's almost like, yeah, this is me. I'm going to be me. So that does play into the story. I don't think it's overdone, and I think it makes sense in this context because of the character that he's playing and the realities of that story. So there's a lot going on in Season 3. You have four different villains doing four different things. You've got accountants that are trapped in the middle, and even the accountants are entertaining to watch when they get involved. The body count is still high. The violence might actually be more brutal. Now, Narcos has never been ashamed to show a lot of blood and gore when it's needed. But I saw headshots in season three that seemed much more visceral and carnal in nature than anything I saw in the first two years. I saw one other critic that I know compare Gilberto Rodriguez to Joffrey from Game of Thrones in just what a conniving little shit. This guy is. Gilberto is the one that wears the suits. You saw him a couple of times in the first, or maybe I guess it was probably in the second season of Narcos. But here, this guy is a sociopath in every sense of the word. He is a dangerous, just hideous human being. Pascal not being in the field as much as Pena means that there has to be other folks out there doing the work. Chris Feistel and Daniel Van Ness become kind of the two field agents that we get to know the most Michael Stahl David plays Chris Feistel Chris Feistel is a smarter better much more well-rounded Steve Murphy and Michael Stahl David is more talented in the role I think than Holbrook was at least with what he was given and Daniel Van Ness who's played by Matt Whelan is almost like a straight shooter compared to Feistel But both of them kind of end up on the same page, but there is a little bit of a dichotomy between the two in the same way that there was between Pena and between Murphy. So they play off each other very, very well. They're not the leads, but they're very good. That's the thing here. Not only did Narcos reload, they brought back enough familiar characters that we did want to see again and then introduced more that we certainly are interested to get to know. Feistel probably near the top of that list, along, of course, with the villains, as we get to know Pacho Herrera and Gilberto Rodriguez, those two in particular, better. Brett Cullen's back as Arthur Crosby. Glenn Morshower joins the show. There's also some other names. Carrie Bechet, who, of course, plays Donna on Halt and Catch Fire. She kind of serves as a bit of a, you know, Sparks romance interest for Pena, I don't think that she did as much as maybe I thought she would. But honestly, females have been really important to Narcos. When you go back and look at Valeria Velez and, of course, Tata and even Steve Murphy's wife. But here, there's just not a lot for the women to do. And I don't know if that's a failing of the writing or they just it just wasn't a focus this time around. But there are not those strong female roles that we have seen in the past, the ones that do control these men of both power, money, and influence. So there's a bit of a different feel there, but if there's one negative that I will tell you about this season, it is simply that it does start slow. First two episodes, I was struggling to stay awake at times, and I was really starting to wonder whether or not you know I was going to dig this in the end. When it picks up, it picks up huge and it never stops. There are some sequences down the stretch in this season, in the last two or three episodes, that are probably as intense as anything this show's ever delivered. Just absolutely special stuff from a suspense standpoint. So well executed. The final episode, so well executed. Leaves you wanting more. Narcos, I think, at worst, was always like a B show. And I don't mean like like an A show against a B show. I mean, like, if you rated it, I think even at its worst, it was still in the B range if you wanted to grade individual episodes. And at its best, it was certainly in the A category. When it was heavy on Mora or, you know, even some of the stuff at the end of season two where Escobar had already taken his fall, they had taken out most of the people close to him, and he was stuck with a bad beard trying to buy ice cream and talking to his dead cousin, Gustavo. Narcos has always been kind of one of the gems of Netflix. I'm not a guy that's really into drug shows, which is kind of funny because I adore Narcos, and breaking bads one of the two best shows of all time and the wire is one of the top 5 shows of all time in basically any list you're going to find narcos tells a true story with obviously with some creative license taken this season is a you know is certainly based on truth as well but it's a story we don't know as well we know about the cali cartel being on the front of time magazine we saw it you know we've seen that photo a couple of times on the show and we see it many more times during season 3 But the only question was whether or not the Cali cartel was going to be entertaining enough, especially because they do everything covertly, and a lot of it is done on ledgers first and with guns last. That's the opposite of how Pablo did it once Pablo was taken out of Congress and realized his political aspirations weren't going to happen because nobody respected the fact that he was a piece-of-shit drug lord. And at some level, I think Pablo actually didn't realize how evil he actually was. He thought he was doing at least some semblance of good. So the Cali Cartel operating out of skyscrapers, how was that going to play? Well, it played well. I think Narcos season three as a whole is the most polished the show has ever been. Maybe the most intriguing when it's really firing on all cylinders. And if you want to call the first couple of seasons of Narcos B as a grade, B plus maybe for season one, B or B minus for season two, Season three is a hair better, at least, than season one. I would say it's, I would say it's actually almost significantly better than, than uh, most of season two. But Pena being the lead, four villains instead of one, and villains we don't know as well, so what they're doing is a little bit more unpredictable than what we expected from Escobar. Works. Losing Mora hurts. You're not going to replace a Wagner Mora. But we got as much out of that character as we possibly could have before they shot him in the head, shot him in the chest on on that rooftop. So Narcos gets a B-plus slash A-minus from me. Those sequences I mentioned near the end of the season get a solid A from me. Narcos Season 3 is a winner. I think it's the most entertaining the show has been, at least at the high points of Season 3. It's something that you're probably going to be binging over this holiday weekend, and you absolutely should because it's a fantastic show. If it's something you've never watched, I will tell you, if you don't like a lot of blood and a lot of tough stuff to watch, you know, you might want to skip this one. But if you want to watch great drama, you should definitely watch Narcos because in any real ranking that counts, Narcos is among, maybe not the best, but among the best shows Netflix has ever provided. And if subtitles scare you off, you need to get over that. Honestly, I find it. Look, I, if there's one thing about me and television, sometimes I'm scatterbrained. And sometimes I have a little bit of ADD. I've actually thought about going to a doctor and just seeing about it because sometimes my focus wavers. I'm thinking about too many different things and I'll lose track and miss something. Because of the subtitles, I've never lost in narcos because I have to read. And it makes it a little bit easier. To actually keep track. I don't have to just look at people talking. I can look at them and then look down and there are the words in front of me. I certainly could subtitle things in English too if I just wanted to add that to it. But in Narcos it plays a little bit better. Because you don't have as many words being said. So I would not be afraid of subtitles if I were you. And while you're at it, go watch Pan's Labyrinth if you haven't done that. And there are many other subtitle films that I could mention that are things that maybe you were scared of that you shouldn't be. But Narcos Season 3 is very good. It survives without Wagner Mora, without Pablo Escobar, and in a post-Pablo world, Narcos is still firing on all cylinders. And Season 4, again, is green-lighted. That may well be the last. We don't know yet. I think Season 3 is going to get a lot of critical love, and I think most of the people are going to really enjoy it as well. So there's going to be a reason to potentially extend these three guys' meaning Broncato, Bernard, and Miro, and let them do more in this world. Because, yet again, there's no end to the drug war. So there are other places they could take us if they so chose. But for the first three seasons, they have taken us down a web of some of the better drama that can be found on television. This is easily one of the best shows of the summer, season three meaning and definitely needs to be added to your queue added to your list immediately and we'll talk about it some more after you've seen it you can tweet me at jmart outkick as you're watching it and continue to ask me questions some people are already starting to do that as it hit the service this morning and you know some folks still dealing with flood waters and some just dealing with a lot of rain that has come from the flood so they're spending a lot of time just sitting indoors even with football coming back on saturday sunday there's going to be a few games to watch but there's probably a good bit of time there with no game of thrones as well for you to maybe start watching narcos and then on labor day certainly you can sit around and watch the cali cartel and pena and the crew go toe-to-toe for a while and i think you'll enjoy it i just mentioned game of thrones so let's talk about that the finale was sunday the season seven finale i should say was sunday And so we'll end today talking about it. I was going to talk about a lot more topics today, but honestly, we went a pretty good length of time on the deuce, and we just talked a good bit about Narcos as well. So let's talk about Game of Thrones, which ended with the wall coming down and the dragon from the deep, basically, being brought back to life, turned into a White Walker and being ridden by the Night King. Cersei being Cersei. Tyrion and Cersei in one of the better scenes in the history of the series. A long meeting scene between a lot of the key players. Another scene that I really loved. I love it when you get a bunch of characters from differing sides together trying to come to some kind of an agreement because you're always going to get fantastic dialogue in a couple of key moments and that's what you got. You got some great lines. You also got the Hound knocking over the I guess you would call it the chest or whatever it was that was carrying the White Walker that they had brought back with them to prove to Cersei this was not some kind of farce. That was well executed as well. We finally got Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen in the sheets. And we did it just as we were finding out or just as it's now official, as Sam and Bran were discussing that they are indeed related so incest is back in style on game of thrones but hey they didn't know it when they decided to sleep together i don't think Tyrion particularly knew it either a lot of talk about the controversial look or not the controversial look but like the forlorn concerned look on Tyrion's face i don't know exactly what that is i don't think it had anything to do with the relation thing obviously Maybe Tyrion is quietly in love with Daenerys. I have no idea. I don't think so. I think it may be more about what this means for the Iron Throne, and what it means we don't know. We know they had sex, and I'm almost positive Daenerys is going to get pregnant from it. One theory that is out there: Daenerys's mom died in childbirth. That it's possible Daenerys dies in childbirth near the end of the series. Which provides the bittersweet ending that we have heard is what's coming. That's what George R.R. Martin said. That's also what, kind of in broad strokes, Benioff and Weiss have said. And that's what I told you needs to happen. This does not need to have some happy fairy tale kind of ending. That is not the world in which Game of Thrones resides. Even if Daenerys is on the Iron Throne five minutes before the end, something dark needs to happen right before it closes. And that sort of closes this chapter or this series. As a whole, the episode was about an hour and 20 minutes long, which is at least reportedly going to be the average of the episodes in the final year, which is one of the reasons I continue to say we're not going to see another Game of Thrones episode until spring of 2019. They start production next month in October. It's going to take them a long time to shoot this. At least as of mid June, they hadn't even written all of it yet. So. There's a lot of work that they're going to have to do. When you look at what HBO has next year, Westworld's going to be back at some point. Obviously, the comedies are going to be there. There's going to be a couple of other dramas premiering as well. True Detective probably going to be back as well. I don't know that it's going to be back in 2018, but I believe so. Mahershala Ali coming off his Academy Award. He's going to play the lead. He's going to play a detective in Arkansas investigating a grisly macabre according to entertainment weekly murder that takes place in the ozarks ozarks now is really in style of course you had ozark on netflix and now you've got true detective going to the ozarks to me that's good the first season of true detective was sort of a backcountryish show second one took it to the city and it was trash i thought it was a terrible season of television i wrote about every episode you can go read my thoughts at outkick.com in the archive season three they really need to prove they can still do this nick Pizzolatto. He did say, look, we were rushed a little bit. I think I made some mistakes. So he wants to remedy that. He's got David Milch, co-creator of Deadwood, and also did Luck and some other things. Milch is going to help him out. Kerry Fukunaga is going to be back as a director. There are many reasons to feel hope for season three. But I will go back and tell you that season one of True Detective, if you want to go back and watch it now that you've seen some other shows since... True Detective came about, TV was already great by that point, but nowhere near where it is now, just in terms of pure quantity of shows that are at least like a B-level kind of show. All the stuff on Netflix, obviously the Hulu stuff, the Amazon Prime stuff, and a few network shows as well, and of course, FX, AMC, those kinds of more premium cable channels, and then the premium networks themselves. True Detective, if you want to go back and watch it, True Detective was great more because of Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson than anything else. The writing on True Detective was spotty, it was inconsistent, and it was sort of simplistic. The finale, some people didn't like the way it ended. I didn't think that the show started particularly well. It was not a long season either. It's, it was very good and I enjoyed it. But when you go back and look at it, Fargo was was far better, just as one example. There are three or four examples on FX alone of shows that were better than True Detective. True Detective, I'm not sure, holds up as much now. If you got time before Season 3 premieres, go back and watch Season 1. Please, God, don't watch Season 2. And really feel about how you think about it once you get through. McConaughey was wonderful as Russ Cole, and Woody Harrelson was fantastic. And, you know, Alexander Daddario and some of the other folks that were a part of it were very good, too. But it more was a vehicle that was driven by the talent of those two leads than anything that was actually written in the script. So that was a little bit off topic because we were talking about Game of Thrones. But Game of Thrones penultimate, uneven, which was a word I just used about True Detective, but I thought it was very good and the article that I'm writing for Outkick about the penultimate season of Game of Thrones compared to some of the others. The criticism I had about Thrones is still there, which is it was all about big moments. It was big moment after big moment after big moment with no time to breathe, no time to actually process what, the, what you saw and have the requisite emotions that are necessary for that to become a palpable part of your viewing experience or certainly your memories of watching this show. There was just too much going on, and you had the time issues in episode 6, and you had whatever was going on with the dragon at the end of the season. But in terms of it being, you know, Game of Thrones was never really a quest show. It's kind of become a quest show. And that's where the Lord of the Rings comparison comes in. It's where the Harry Potter comparisons come in, at least the Deathly Hallows or some of those kinds of things where it did turn into a quest. It was a quest for the, you know, the Snow Seven or the Snowshin Seven, I saw them called, going or maybe it was a Snoshans 11 and taking off the Oceans 11 deal, going north to grab the White Walker and engaging in that, armies marching, but doing so in a much more organized fashion, it did feel a little bit more like a game of, of advanced wars or something like that than maybe it has in the past. And then it brought in the fairy tale elements, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago on this very show. But as a whole... The season was well done, because it was almost never boring. In contrast to the Americans, which was almost always boring in the last season, even though I still enjoyed it because I think that show's brilliant, of the two, Game of Thrones dwarfed the Americans when it comes to the penultimate season. In the seasons before, either the fight would be a lot closer, or the Americans would have won it in just about every other year. Final season of both is likely to be very good. Americans will end next year. I predict Game of Thrones won't end until the following spring, and then we'll have whatever spinoffs they've decided to make at that point. And, of course, Benioff and Weiss, if they haven't been drawn and quartered yet, are still, at least at the time being, planning on doing Confederate, which just the mere mention of in the right circles will get you ostracized and kicked out. But Game of Thrones, in its short season, these seven episodes, accomplished a lot. Twelve-point-something million watched it live last Sunday which is just absurd. Ballers ended up doing like 3 million live just from the spillover audience that stuck around. So there was a good deal going on. And most of it worked. Got a lot from the characters you wanted to get a lot from. I predicted Jorah would be, would be dead. He's not. kind of happy about that because I'd like to spend some more time with, with him. Also a good moment with Jorah and Jon Snow Sunday over the Mormont sword. And just the talk that they had. And maybe the most understated and entertaining moment of the season was Sandor and Brienne kind of talking about Arya. I saw this tweeted out, so I'm not going to take credit for it. I'm not sure who said it, but they're kind of talking about Arya as if they were parents of her and they were sort of semi proud of her and still semi scared of her. Both of them sort of smiling and laughing about their time with Arya Stark, but it was effective. Big Death, as we saw the end of Littlefinger. That may have been one of the most predictable scenes this show has done in years. As soon as you saw that hall and Arya was called in there, you knew it was going to be Littlefinger. You knew that Sansa and Arya were smarter and had outsmarted him and that it was time for Peter Baelish to go. He went quickly as well. They did not belabor. We didn't see him just spurt out. It was, whoosh, and he was gone. And so we waved goodbye to him. He was a good character, but it was probably time for the sniveling jerk to go. Euron Greyjoy's still alive, but he'll be the one that gets dead relatively quickly when we get to the final season. We got Theon finally standing up and being a man, despite the fact that he has no Yes. But you know, I guess the Theon character and me sort of parted ways a while back. Most of that stuff bored me. This was a little bit of redemption for him, and he had that moment in the chamber with the iron throne with john that may be the thing that we did need to see from those two guys him in the fist fight over by the water i don't know that we needed that extra two minutes of the episode but we got it nonetheless it was a good finale i don't necessarily think it was a great finale some people said was this the best episode of the series history i think so no this was not a top five episode it's probably top 10 i'd have to really go back and think about it but there were some holes there and there were just there were some things that didn't need to exist there there were at least two episodes this season i would say that were better than that one and certainly the finale of last year was far better hard home was better battle of blackwater was better um i could probably come up with at least a couple of more as well so that was game of thrones we will see how it ends in 2019 presuming that we're all still alive that's the one thing i always think about this and it's sort of a dark thought but if there's a show that you love or whatever and you know that the final season's like a year away, we take for granted the fact that we're gonna all going to see the end of this show. There are people that are gigantic fans of this show that will not see how it ends because death wins. And that sucks. And I hope none of you guys are that. I hope nobody is that. But I hope nobody listening to this that cares about that show doesn't see how it ends. You know, I was so scared that my mother, who's a huge Mad Men fan, you know was going to get sick or something might have happened to her and she wasn't going to see the end of that show she had seen every episode five or six times she was an enormous fan of mad men and i remember when the finale aired and you know she was able to comment on it and watch it and talk to me about it after the fact i was just i felt thankful honestly because not that she's in terrible health or anything but she's getting up there in age and you just you wanted her to have that moment Sort of a weird thought for me to bring up, but hey, it's Outkick the Culture so we can go wherever it is that we need to go. Americans, Game of Thrones penultimates, a lot different from some other shows. That's the article I wrote at Outkick the Culture, or pardon me, Outkick the Coverage about the Thrones penultimate against Breaking Bad, against Mad Men, against some of the others. I would say it was uniquely done in that it was much more action packed and full of life than a lot of penultimate seasons are. But. Knowing they had an end date, they I don't know that they know everything that they want to do in the finale, or maybe they have finished writing it all now and they know exactly where they're headed with every character, but they did enough with everybody that you're intrigued to see where it's headed for a number of different characters. The question everybody asks is who's going to be on the Iron Throne at the end. I think the question that people need to be asking is what's going to happen to Tyrion, what's going to happen to Jon Snow, what's going to happen to Daenerys, what's going to happen to Jorah? what's going to happen to Lady Mormont, what is going to happen to Sansa and Arya, what's going to happen with Bran, or is he done now that he's had his reveal, what's going to happen with or Sam, and all of these other folks, individually. Because we have become so invested in a large swath of these individuals that their fates are all important. The Iron Throne is the ultimate, certainly, or how power is distributed once this show comes to a close but there are far more than one question that that people should be speculating about and having fun with over the next 12 to 18 months before we get another episode of this show and there will be six in the final season and then this show will take a wrap so i lied again i said we're going to talk about bojack horseman this week in the first couple of seasons honestly narcos took so much of my time i wasn't able to go back and rewatch as i had hoped BoJack is basically going to be my whole week coming now, so we'll be able to talk about that. We'll also get back into the center next week and talk about the two episodes since we last discussed that show. Mr. Robot coming back in October. Promos are starting to air right now on USA. We will talk about the first two seasons of that show. The first one that was very good, and the second one that was inconsistent and at times infuriating and whether or not Sam Esmail and crew are going to be able to pull it back together for season three because this is really a make or break it year in many respects for how that show is going to be seen historically Rami Malek's performance remains fantastic as do Portia Doubleday and so many of the others on that show but if Mr. Robot is to be remembered as what it could be It needs to go back to being more of Season 1 and less of Season 2. Stop with the tricks. Stop with trying to outsmart the audience and just tell a damn good story that makes sense. And we'll see whether or not Sam Esmail and his team are going to give that to us or not. That's a show I'll be covering weekly for Outkick.com. It's a show that we'll be talking about weekly on this very podcast. Next week, a ton, 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 ton of BoJack Horseman. I said we were going to do weekly, kind of leading in, and man, it made a lot of sense at the time. And then you get on this podcast, you start talking, and things happen, and football comes back, and Narcos drops, and so many other things are hitting at the same time. The center becomes a a hit, and you have to go watch that. Rick and Morty's on fire, and then you just kind of lose track. But this weekend, I'm going to be watching all of season four. That review will go up next week at outkick.com. We will talk about BoJack in detail, mostly the first three seasons next week, and then we'll give you a week, and I'll give you a little bit of review of four without spoiling much, and then the following week, we will delve into four, and by that point, you will or hopefully will have watched everything. Emmys are going to be nearby. I'll give you my predictions on those in coming weeks, not just yet, but certainly in the week before, that'll be something to look forward to you need to reach me, I'm at Jmart Outkick on Twitter. You can email me at jmartclone at gmail.com. Some other fun stuff coming down the pike as well. HBO bringing back some comedies. They've renewed some stuff. FX has some interesting stuff in the hopper as well. So there's going to be some interesting news tidbits that we're going to save for next week. Also, we're going to get back into Leah Remedy's show and talk about what's been a very difficult season, honestly, of Scientology and the aftermath to watch comparatively to season one. I mean, season one, I knew most of those people, or almost all of them, as a matter of fact, and their stories. This year, I do know, I've known about half the people, but the stories are tough to deal with, with child and sexual abuse and all of those things. It's clear that Mike Render and Leah Remini are upping the ante against the Church of Scientology and really trying to make them out to be the boogeyman that, in many respects, I think they should be made out to be. So we will get into that next week as well. Only three topics this week. A lot of Narcos, a lot of The Deuce. Both are shows you need to watch. That first episode of The Deuce is available for you on demand via HBO Go, HBO Now, and On Demand Portals. Narcos Season 3 streaming. If you haven't watched 1 and 2, obviously don't watch 3 until you've watched those, and you'll get the pleasure of watching Wagner Mora operate as Pablo Escobar, which is one of the true joys in terms of just watching one performance that we've had on TV this decade, and then some Game of Thrones, and for some reason we talked some True Detective in there as well, because that did make news once Entertainment Weekly kind of revealed Pizzolatto saying, here's where it's going to be set, and here's kind of what it's going to look like. I'm more excited about it just hearing that than I am at any point about season two, when most of the details started to leak out about what they were going to do there. This situation in the Ozarks, by the way, is going to span multiple decades. There's going to be time shifts, just like we've seen in the past. But these might be maybe more elaborate than we've seen there. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. That's it. You know what? I'm out. My voice is about shot for the week. I need a nap. You guys need a nap. Maybe a sandwich. Sponsors out there, hit me up. jmarkclone at gmail.com. If you're a musician, you want to do some music for this show, love to hear from you as well, jmartclone at gmail.com. Love, hate, whatever it is, jmartclone at gmail.com or on Twitter at jmartoutkick. Until next week, folks. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs>